I don't know if you know, Harry, but when you were born, James and Lily made me your godfather. I know. And, well, I can understand if you choose to stay with your aunt and uncle. But if you ever wanted a different home... What? Come and live with you? Well, that's just a thought I can understand if you don't want to. Hello, listening people. Hello. You're listening to Spit and Polish Presents. I am one of your hosts, Ryan Sawinski. And I'm Bartek. Hi, Bartek. How are you? I'm doing well, Ryan. How are you? I'm doing, uh, magically. I'm very magical feeling. I'm, I'm floating, in fact, as we talk. I'm levitating. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> That's Martek's <laughs> reaction to someone levitating is a mild whoa. Whoa. Whoa, you, man, am I high? You know, I always thought <laughs> no, that... you're high. I, I always thought that Keanu Reeves was miscast in the Matrix movies, because I always thought, like, if someone realized they were in the Matrix, they would have, like, a bigger reaction than just, like, a mild whoa. But you, right here, right now, have proven me wrong, because if you saw someone levitating in front of you, you would react with a mild <laughs> whoa. So the idea of fantastical things happening and mild reaction isn't actually... It's, it's actually accurate, so give... Well, it, I mean, it's the second most interesting thing you've ever done, so it can only ever be, you know... Yeah. It can only be second best, most exciting thing Ooh, I can react to. The, the most interesting thing being? Uh, that one time I had that dream and you were just a little uh, head and two legs. I uh, wasn't just, like, a, a shrunken head hanging off of a, <laughs> off of a bus mirror? And every, every time I wanted to take something out of the room, you'd say, Take it away! We've got to talk about it. We're doing Pictures Powwow, a show in which we discuss a movie that has come recommended. Bartek is the one that has recommended the movie of discussion for this episode, which you can see written in the title. But Bartek, remind us all what was the movie you selected. The movie I selected for this episode is 2004's Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. So if you have not seen the Harry Potter, Prisoner of Azkaban, or basically any Harry Potter movie or book, maybe... Give them a watch. We're going to talk about it. I think it's safe to say if you're walking in listening to a Harry Potter review, you're probably already knowing what you feel about it and knowing the details already. So if I say to you, the bad guy's Voldemort, you won't go, I am Lord Voldemort. Um, Bartek, you recommended this film, so tell us your relationship and history with this film. And the Harry Potter brand. That's what I call it now. Not franchise, brand. Yes, it's a, it's an adult word. Empire. <laughs> <laughs> Empire, that's that's big adult. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like adult, but big. Um, conglomerate. Harry... <laughs> conglomerate. <laughs> <laughs> that's like, that's like intergalactic level evil. <laughs> Their J.K. Rowling conglomeracy has come over our childhood and has cashed in on our nostalgia. And if you want people with, like, really high levels of nepotism, family. <gasps> uh, Harry Potter. So I uh, grew up with the books, mm. and I grew up with the movies coming out uh, as I was growing up. So I'm part of the age demographic where I guess you could say I was growing up alongside the books mm. uh, with, with the franchise. Um, so I was very much into the franchise growing up. Uh, I got into it a bit later than most people. It was between the first and second movie coming out. Mm. Um, but once I was in, I was in. I, I read all the books. Um, I think like half of them came out when I got into them. 
Uh, and as the movies were coming out, it was just a really big thing among people that I went to school with. It was, I mean, it was an international sensation. It was a huge, wasn't it like record-breaking yeah. children's book series? Of course. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. So you 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 kind of caught up with the books after the movies had kind of started to come out. Was it that you? Oh, just after the first book movie, yeah. But you had seen the first movie, and that's what made you want to go back to the books. I think I think I was actually kind of going against the the status quo a bit. <laughs> Whoa, a rebel here! Move I, over, guys. Yes, I think I, I was being a bit of a hipster and like, oh, this this popular thing everyone likes. Well, I'm not gonna watch it. But then eventually, I, I think I read the first book first. Mm. And that's how I got into it. Then I checked out the movie. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm into this. What was the first movie you saw in theatre? Uh, Philosopher's Stone is the only one that I haven't seen in theatre, so it would have been mm. Chamber of Secrets. See, I saw Philosopher's Stone, and that's what we call it because it's correct. I'm sorry, America, that you don't understand what a philosopher is. Um, I saw that in cinema. I saw the second one in cinema, and I saw this one in the cinema, the third one that we're discussing. And then I skipped all the way to the last two parts, and we can talk about that too. Yeah. Um, I had read the first two, maybe three books, and then the movies came out. And I remember I read them because my sister was really into them, and she was kind of reading them to me and kind of pressuring me into reading them because she's a real big book fan and a uh, bigger, bigger, bigger fan of fantasy than I am. I've always even from a younger age, had a kind of resistance to the fantasy genre. It's just never been yep. a big thing for me. So she was trying to push me into that because, you know, they're prestigious books at this point. But back in the day, it was like, my God, there's there's actual children's fantasy books that are really well written and really clever and actually care about character and intrigue and actually has atmosphere and has a general sense of they know what the fuck they're doing which was really unique at the time. That's what I remember about the books. I felt like there was a real energy when I was a child and when my sister was a child of like, oh my God, there's actually books uh, for in our demographic that's actually like happening right here and now that's actually good. That was like a bizarre concept. Now, the young adult genre is a whole entire thing in which people in their pre-teens and teens get a lot of these type of books, whether you say they're Harry Potter rip-offs or whatever else, there's a lot more obvious marketability and care towards making finely tuned stories for children in yeah. this kind of high f fashion. And so, at the, but at the time, it was really enticing, and I saw the movies. I really loved those first two movies. I really loved um, my experience seeing the Chamber of Secrets. I remember we were waiting outside the, the theater in my town. It was like the first day I was coming there. And uh, we were waiting outside for like a good hour. It was like a huge line. Like it went all around the block. It was like the longest line I've ever seen for a movie in my hometown. And we saw it and it was a glorious time. The most memorable sequence to me, of course, is the the spider sequence in that movie which having rewatched the first two movies along with this one for this review that that actually still holds up pretty well like some of the cg is a little shaky but it's still effective and it's still very i've never been afraid of spiders but that sequence does get the hair on the back of your neck going and uh the second movie also had the great uh you know blinding the basilisk and trying to hide from it and all that kind of stuff was really suspenseful 
Do you remember how massive the marketing was for these movies, and especially this third movie? I really remember in my brain, the third one, Prisoner of Azkaban had, like, the trailers were always on for this movie, and it was always a sequence with the Dementors coming on the train, and the ice happening, and all that I, kind of stuff. I definitely remember the Chamber of Secrets one, because... Mm. I remember distinctly there was a part in that trailer where it was it was it showed part of the duel that Harry and Malfoy had where, where he said scared Potter you wish yeah 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 and then it cut to something else then it cut to Harry and he did a he did a spell mm. and I remember my brother you know he's much younger than me six years younger mm. you know monkey see monkey do he would often just quote that little segment of the trailer usually without any sense of rhythm so he'd just like say all the lines really quickly. I remember from that second movie's trailer, the line, the sequence that I remembered, obviously, is the the car and the Whomping Willow was in the trailer, in my recollection, but also the near the end where Lucius is like, oh, let's all hope that Mr. Potter's always here to save the day, and Harry being like, I will, you know, kind of thing. Like, mm-hmm. that was great, because I'm like, ooh, who's this guy? He seems menacing. Yeah, I mean, I just seem to remember that when when each of those first four films came out, they were just, like, a really, really big thing that everyone had seen more than once, you know, especially after they came out on DVD or whatever. Hmm. So I remember it would be a thing of, like, oh, I... I got into this Philosopher's Stone movie. I'd watch that a few mm. times. Then the new one would come out, and it's like, oh, wow, now I've just, like, doubled the Harry Potter, so now I watch that one over and over, and then third one, fourth one. So is, so you've picked the third one. Is there a particular reason? Is this your favourite of the series? Ooh, what was what was the thought process for, for picking this and not just going for the first one or the last one or... You know, any of that. Like, what made you go for the third? Because when I've done this in the past, when I've picked a series and I've picked not the first one, yeah, there's, like, an obvious, re- a very obvious reason for that. Like, yeah, oh, the, Revenge the, of the Sith. The two Star Wars ones are contentious entries. Yeah, contentious or considered to be great misunderstood masterpieces. Yeah, while yeah. this, it's like, everyone kind of agrees, oh, yeah, Prince of Azkaban, that's, I think it's the highest rated of the movies. It seems to be, yeah. Um, I picked this one... I guess there are multiple reasons, but one of the major ones that was in my head was that often throughout the years, we've never, we've we've never done any episode on the podcast specifically about Harry Potter, but it's been brought up a few times. Because of actors appearing. Actors appearing and also just, you know, how prevalent a lot of things about it are in pop culture. Obviously a mm. lot of J.K. Rowling talk. Mm. Um, with And Prisoner of Azkaban was always this one where we seemed to have, like, even though none of us, neither of us had seen it recently, we seem to have like differing memories about how good it was or how bad it was. Like I remember yeah. one point you'd always bring up is that the film was always very yellowy, and, yeah. that, and that was always something that I just did not remember. So I wanted to kind of you know have a reassessment of it, but also this film is a point in this iconic franchise where the tone started to shift, director uh, change, director change, uh, just. Character changes. Uh, yeah, character changes, a lot of redesigning stuff, a lot of things being set in stone for the future. New actors. New actors. And even though this is a show where we focus on one movie in particular, I thought it would be interesting to uh, not only talk about this movie in particular, but also uh, how this shapes the franchise as a whole. Is this your favourite of the of the Harry Potter movies? I think maybe the one after this might be my favourite. Goblet of Fire. Goblet of Fire, possibly. I, I'm not really... I, I don't think I've had anything set in stone, but I definitely remember that when this film came out, you know how I mentioned that I'd watched all the previous ones multiple mm. times and a new one comes out? I remember with Chamber of Secrets, I 
know that I saw it so much that I kind of got tired of it. And then mm. when this one came out, it was like, you know, super breath of fresh air. It's a mm. new film. And it's also, it also feels incredibly different mm. to the previous two films. So it, it definitely, I think, probably had the biggest impact. It's not mine. Mine's Chamber of Secrets. Um, yep. I think it's just a really well-made movie. I like the intrigue, the mystery. I like the threat. Um, I like the characters interplays off of one another in that movie. I like the music a lot in that movie too. I like the um, Quidditch scenes in that movie because they actually serve a purpose. Unlike in the first one where it was like, um, we just have them because look, that's a thing in the world. While that one actually like, there was a purpose to each one of them. Mm -hmm. Even in this movie, it was kind of like, and it happened. We had to have one. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah, like... Um, I saw the third movie, and I didn't like it. I and I didn't like it to the point in which it's not. I hated this movie. I just it made me go, oh okay, and I never really watched any of the other Harry Potter movies ever again. I saw the last two in the cinema only because my high school friends took me to them because they were the big monumental things, and I was like, come on, Ryan, you were into it once come see the end of the journey and I didn't watch any of the films beforehand and I felt like I completely understood what was going on in those two last films so that kind of speaks to the credit of how well made they are Mm -hmm. as movies those last two where I can still pick it up and be like okay I understand what's happening Dumbledore didn't make it I know that I know that because it's a big meme (laughs) well I knew that before we knew right so there was a big thing of somebody dies in the book where he dies and I and I remember destroying several of my classmates' hearts by going, "Oh, it's it's Dumbledore," and they were like, "No, it isn't. Shut up!" And then when they got up to it, they started crying and say, "Why did you ruin it for me?" I'm like, "I haven't even read the book. It's because he's on the cover. It's like the only one where he's on the cover. Why would it be? Who else would it be?" That was like my thought process as a small child of, "Oh, someone's gonna die. Who else is on the cover other than Harry? Oh, it's Dumbledore. Well, it's him then." Right. Thought process 101. There you go. Done. Didn't need to read 500 pages to get to that point. <laughs> but I like those first two movies. I got up to this one, and there was just something that disconnected to me. I, maybe I'd grown up a bit. Maybe my tolerance for the franchise had waned. Maybe my disdain for fantasy had taken over because we had the Lord of the Rings movies at the same time, right? This was around the same era. Yeah, yeah. I think this was the same year as Return of the King. And I wasn't a huge fan of those movies either. And there was a level of, and I'm not denying that these are all great films, but there's this level of, at the time especially, you've got to accept that they are instant great films. And if you don't, you're wrong. Right. And it was like with Prince of Azkaban, it was definitely like, this is the best film ever made. Everything's great about it. Accept it. And I never had the inkling to ever rewatch it again. And there was visual things I didn't like about the movie. I remember this movie being very yellow, which it is, by the way. Yeah, a lot of the lightings, the scenes that have lighting in it. Were... When the scenes aren't looking like Children of Men, mm-hmm. they are yellow. And it was just a very distaste. I didn't like the look of the movie. As a kid, I didn't like it. And as an adult, I hate it. <laughs> um, as we've talked about many times on the podcast, uh, there are certain movies that do deserve to look like a Holocaust movie. And then there are some that don't. And I don't think this one needs to look like a Holocaust movie the entire film. Mm-hmm. I understood it in sections, but we could talk about that more so as we go along. But I have not revisited this film since I saw it in the cinema. Revisiting it now... 
I still don't like it. I found it incredibly boring in sections. I know I'm breaking so many people's hearts no, saying know, this, yeah, yeah. but I just found myself going, okay, the thrust of the plot sounds like it's here. Like, oh, Harry, the evil, murderous, serious black is after you. But a lot of it is just they attend a class. They attend another class. They have some back-and-forth scenes, and, uh, oh, Hermione's doing something that we don't understand, and then, oh, a teacher gives them a wag of the finger, and, oh, there's new Defense of the Dark, and it just feels like, okay, but what's the... Uh, where's the stakes here? Like, I understand it when you set it up, but it didn't feel as overbearingly present, because it's like, we've got these Dementors. They're all over the school, and yet we rarely see them, and they only pop up here and there, and I always felt like, as a kid and as an adult, I felt, like, ripped off by that. I thought... These guys were the selling points, and I felt like we didn't get enough of them in the movie. And I kind of still feel like that in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's like the the scenes where you do see them are the ones where they're causing trouble. Yeah. Not so much, yeah, like, threat of, like, ooh, if we get close to them. Yeah, like, I thought there would be more shots of, like, them having conversations, and in the distance, in the sky, you would see them kind of floating about to add that menace. But they only did that. They were just hard cut to them floating in the sky to let us know, hey, they're still here, by the way. Yeah, have them be a background element, part of the sky. Yeah, I thought they would be more present in that regard. I didn't need them to be, like, floating in the hallways at night, being like, what are you doing, Mr. Fodder? <laughs> like, I didn't need that. <laughs> but, like, because that's Snape's job, apparently. Um, What do you think about the movie now, having revisited it for this? And not having... You didn't rewatch any of the other movies before, and you just watched this one in isolation? Yeah, I don't think I've seen any Harry Potter films since the very last one came out in cinemas so 2011 so it's, over 10 years yeah just almost About 10, 10 years, years. Yeah. yeah um yeah so i i watched this one without re-watching the first two i was thinking mm. about it but i didn't which i i don't know what that says about me that i watched the prequels for episode three but <laughs> <laughs> yeah this film i was telling you this before we started podcasting today uh Considering that last week we did A Dangerous Method and I talked about how a lot of that film was just, you know, very short scenes <laughs> and then moving on to the next scene to all bridge the gap, this film also did that quite a lot. There were a lot of scenes where it would you'd get the setup just by looking at what they cut to, like, oh, Harry and the new teacher are now on the bridge to have a conversation. Yeah. It's like, oh, oh okay, I guess they met up somewhere and went here. <laughs> And, and to this film's credit, everything does relate to the story when it, it happens. Like, I, I feel like this film is one where a lot of the first, let's say, like, four-fifths of it mm. is leading up to the the climactic night, which, yeah. which everything unfolds. You know, like, the execution, meeting Sirius, saving mm. him, the time travel stuff. Like, all of that is information that pays off in some way during that sequence and it you know this film's two hours long so it takes a while to get there mm, so mm. you are watching this film a lot of the way just i guess almost like a slice of life kind of experience did you enjoy it though uh i en i enjoyed it when it kind of got to the climactic <laughs> point but you know in the lead up there there was just like yeah little moments where i was like oh yeah this is fun um but as an overall thing, it does feel like something that people praise in the context of it being part of a series rather than mm. a standalone film. But Alfonso Cuaron directed it with his beautiful style that's so unique and different. Did that not elevate it for you? Did the simple 
Um, the simplicity of really well done direction and unique direction not win you over a bit more? I definitely appreciated it more now than when I was a kid. There was mm. a lot of shots where, you know, the camera wasn't being still and you get that very early on. Like, mm-hmm. the first time Harry talks to his uncle, it's he's at the front door and he's, like, asking for the permission slip. You can tell that the camera is, you know, constantly kind of shaking. It's like yeah. handy cam and it does feel like, you know, kind of chaotic and you're in the moment. Mm. Um, and the rest of that sequence it does lend itself more to the the whimsical nature of the first few films. Like the music mm. is, you know, very playful and, you know, some wacky CGI stuff is happening. Mm. And then when Harry storms out of the house into the night and he's alone and it's quiet, like it really does kind of feel like a microcosm of the transition from the first two films to the serious nature of the rest of the franchise. I had a really big belly laugh mm-hmm. um, when Harry Potter storms out after inflating his um, aunt yeah who's trunchable from matilda by the way i know you haven't seen the matilda movie have you but no i haven't but I, that's the same actress a trivia point mentioned that she was in children of men yeah yeah she was um was she the one that got killed in the car i think it's been a it's been a little while since yeah. uh we watched that one hasn't it um but uh he sits down and we see the dog Yes. The CG dog. Yeah. That's serious <laughs> snarling at him. Yep. Because that's what Sirius wanted to do, I guess, is snarl at Harry to let us think that he's menacing, even though he's supposed to be his friend. I don't know what that was about. I don't know either. It's one of those ones where they're on purposely misleading you. There was lots of those things that bugged me. But I had a good belly laugh because he comes out of the bushes and I just said, <gasps> Enough. <laughs> a scrunt. <laughs> I thought of lady in the, lady in the water. So I don't have hard. my notes on me. I don't know what the term is. Scrunt. But it's one of them. It's a scrunt. Weren't scrunts like leafy, grassy? Or... Dogs. Yeah, yeah, but they were the dogs that right. came out yeah. of the grass, and he came out. And since it's a CG dog and it doesn't look at all real, and it never does, he looks like a scrunt to me. I'm like scrunt, and I had a good laugh about that. And then the comedy came in into the movies, and um. Do you like the comedy in this movie, in this uh, film? And do you like them in any of the other films? It's been too long since I've seen the other films, so I can't speak for them. With the Aunt Marge thing before this point, I wasn't quite feeling it, but then when it had the contrast of Harry leaving and being out in the dark, and you know, I mentioned the, the, yeah. the, the liminal nature of it moving towards the darker thing, I kind of appreciated it in that context, but then the fact that it was followed up by, like, the night bus thing kind of felt like it defeated those feelings I was having. Not a fan of the night bus. I I don't hate it, but again, I just feel like if that energy could have been redirected to the scene beforehand, maybe I would have preferred the tone more. I have a big issue with the comedy in this movie. In the other two movies beforehand, the comedy felt more... It came from the characters themselves, while this one felt like more situational and physical. Like, hey, there's a hunchback guy and he's just laughing. <laughs> and that's hilarious, apparently. Um, I didn't find it that funny. It was funny when you did it. Or when the woman opens up the door and it screams at her and then she closes the door. Like, that stuff. I think that was in the trailer. That was cute. But yeah. uh, the night bus scene, it was like, we got famous British comedian Lenny Henry and we're going to have him do the voice of a shrunken head. And he's just going to riff and do whatever the fuck he wants. And I'm like, okay. And they were going to do all this visual crazy stuff. And 
when moments like that happen, this, these silly things, and I had this in the first movie as well, there are these limitations within your genres that when you have these silly things, it reminds like, I know the children's movies, but just to go to fantasy for a second. Yep. I hate, I'm not a big fan of fantasy. In the first movie, Voldemort gets defeated because Harry Potter has love all over his body and it makes him turn to stone. And it reminds me, oh, that's right, fantasy's stupid. And when, and it's like, but Harry Potter as a franchise, as a book series, as a world is really clever and really smart and really well thought out. But then you get reminded, oh yeah, but JK said that wizards used to shit in their pants and then use a magic spell to get rid of it. And you go, oh, but that's just JK being stupid afterwards. But then I watched the sequence, like the night bus sequence and I go, oh, that's right. No, no, no. Even the best universes like Star Trek, Star Wars, Harry Potter, they they have just stupid shit in there because they wanted to have a laugh. And that's all well and good. It just it depends how you take it. There's stupid shit in Star Trek that would annoy other people that I like. This is just one of those where I just I was suffering so much during the night night bus sequence. It just went on for so fucking long and I wasn't finding any of it funny and the visual effects didn't look very good either at the time. I didn't think they looked good. <laughs> Um, the funniest thing about that is when you consider the trivia point that apparently Alfonso Caron wanted like tiny people at Hogwarts to like jump on pianos and something, and J.K. said no to that. But the shrunken head wasn't in the book, so that was something she had to approve for the movie. Yeah. Mm. So I have a big issue with the look of this movie. It was always one of the things, and. The next few movies, the next movies in the whole series, adopt this look, but it's like they intensify it. Like, I remember the Goblet of Fire being very, like, blue and drained of colour, and everything's kind of like a washed-out look. And then the last two movies, they're, like, brown and really washed out. I'm like, what the fuck happened to the colour? Like, I get it. It's getting darker, Ryan. But I I hate that (laughs) you think in a film... It's getting darker means that the that the film looks like the camera was dunked in a dirty toilet bowl. Like, I hate the look of some of these movies. And this movie kind of starts that off. And there's this, like, this unnatural, weird yellow lighting and tinting. And then the other scenes look like Children of Men. It worked in Children of Men because that was a world that was like a, a fucking nightmare world. This, I thought, okay... When the movie started, I thought, oh, okay, okay, the muggle world is going to look like this. Mm-hmm. And then when we get to the, the, the school and all that, it will brighten up because that's like where Harry's happy. But yeah. then the Dementors come in. I'm like, oh, that's okay. The Dementors are there. And then the film just stayed this look throughout the whole thing. And I was just like, oh, okay. The, okay, there's just, this is just, and then I know the director. Oh, this is just his color palette like that he likes to work with. Okay. And I just don't. I just don't like it. There's just so many sequences in which it's supposed to be like a happy, fun time, and yet it looks like they're about to be walked into a gulag. I don't know why it looks like this all the time. There are moments where I'm like, okay, I can understand this section. If you placed it here, like like I said, like if the muggle world was this kind of film color, and then the magical world was this, and then maybe it gets darker when the Dementors come... But no, it's just kind of like the whole film just looks like he's shooting Son of Soul. And I don't know why. <laughs> Could you tell me why? And do you have a problem with it? Or am I just being nit- nitpicking and biased? Bye-bye. Um, it never really bothered me. Again, I, I think it just lends itself more to the tone that the film's going for. There's a lot of... This was something I hadn't really thought about until I rewatched it this time. But 
when you first see Ron and Hermione, it's not a very... It's just matter of fact. It's very matter of fact, yeah. And I noticed that as the film went on, a lot of the film was kind of focusing on Harry not being around them. Like, he is Mm. with them through a lot of it, and the climax, certainly he Mm. and Hermione are, you know, carrying the climax together. Um, But this focus on Harry alone going through all these things, I feel like that kind of lends itself there, like this kind of isolated thing. Yeah. Like, you've got this whole thing of... Harry's uh, he leaves his home he's alone and it's he, he's scared because he sees a dog that might matter um you got those you got the whole sequences when all the other kids are going to the Hogsmeade village and he's alone mm. staring out at them there's the scene where he's in the clock tower looking through the clock you even have the quidditch match in which is just him alone up there in the sky trying to get the snitch because the other guy got shot by lightning mm and um, it's just him, the Dementors up there. Like, yeah, the film definitely does nail that. Even with like, I noticed the scene, you know, when Hagrid is like in his court outfit, you know, like his suit and tie and is like skipping the rocks mm-hmm. in the stone. And that's the scene where he lets them know that they're going to kill the hippogriff. In the scene, Harry is sitting on one side and Hermione and Ron are sitting on the other side. Like, so you have Hagrid in the middle and they're on the shore or whatever. And they're like very far apart, like Harry's on his own. Like there's a lot of visual language in the film of Harry's isolated and alone. Even though he's got his friends, he's still feeling very insecure and isolated. But why does that necessitate the film looking like a Holocaust movie? Like, the visual colour palette of the movie. Why does the whole film need to look like Harry Potter is about to be put to Auschwitz? I guess... Tell me that. (laughs) Tell me that. That's, like, always been my problem. Like, the film... And Mm. I'm being a bit hyperbolic because this film doesn't look as extreme as that, but it definitely has... Yeah, that's kind of where I'm hung up on. It definitely has that tint to it, and then the next few films increase it to where it is that look to me. Mm Mm-hmm. And why? Why does the film need to visually look like this? Is this just because it actually suits the film? Or is this just Alfonso's style? Because this seems to just be his style. I, I, I guess when I think when I thought back on this film before I rewatched it for this episode, I always thought of it as, oh yeah, that's the film where this, this constant threat of, mm. you know, there's a killer out there and he's clearly getting closer and closer. Like, this would lend itself more to, like, a horror-y vibe. But then, mm. yeah, again, watching the film, the stretches between development on the whole serious Black thing are fairly spread out. Yeah. You really... And you by the time you actually see him not as a picture, that's you're in the middle of the climax. That's why I like Chamber of Secrets better. The, the, the overwhelming threat of the chamber itself, the basilisk and the mystery and the petrifying kids is throughout the whole entire film. You still have the ability to have fun sequences in between all of that, but you're still always constantly reminded of this overwhelming dread that is the antagonistic foe of Voldemort coming in. And I imagine it gives a whole sort of personality to the setting itself, the castle. Yeah, and while in this, it's like every now and then McGonagall will mention, ooh, we've heard that he's coming close by, but we don't see any, like, results of that until he physically shows up near the end of the movie. Well, I guess he scratches the fat lady's portrait. That was him? I assume so. Was okay. I guess so. I guess so. 
I wasn't too sure if it was him or um Timothy Spall. Because we know Timothy Spall is wandering about the castle doing mysterious shit at night too. Mm. I mean, heck, could you explain to me who possessed Emma Thompson in that one scene? And why is that there? What was that? That's what I mean. There's just so many moments of like random misdirects or like random leading you down one path of spooky thing. Like, I lost my fucking mind with Lupin and uh, and Sirius in the in the shack or whatever, where they're just not explaining anything for like a solid ten minutes, and then yeah. Sir- and then and then Snape comes in, and then they further not explain it, and it just drove me nuts. But do you see what I'm saying? Like, oh, I yeah. guess Sirius. Could have been the guy slash depending. I know people who read the books are going, yes, it was Ryan. But in the movie, they also present you with another guy who's actually in the castle. We know it's in the castle for the whole movie, running around doing shit at night as well. Yeah. Missing for days on end as well. So I'm like, he could have done it too. Well, I guess even regardless of who did it, it's a... Th- as, 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 as a big deal as it is when it happens, you kind of forget about it. Because there's no consequence. There's no consequence. and Because what happens? Oh, you never painting, get context for a it. A really. painting got slashed. Oh, no. Does that mean the fat lady's dead? No, she's in another painting. Meanwhile, in the Chamber of Secrets, oh, no. My friend Haman... Like, no, no. It goes, oh, no. A cat, a cat got petrified. Now they think I did it. Oh, no. My good friend, Nearly Headless Nick, got petrified, as well as another guy. Oh, no. They think I did it. See, it's building up the stakes. And then till yeah. eventually, oh, no. My friend Hermani has been petrified. Oh no! The, who's next? Who's who's going to be next? Is it going to be my friend Ron? Is it going to be me? Oh my god! And this is just like oh, and randomly a painting got slashed up. Oh no! <laughs> like, mm. The most intense sequence in the movie is when Harry's looking for the rat, and he doesn't know it's a rat, right? Well, he's, he's looking for Peter Pettigrew. Yeah, when he's that's yeah. the most intense sequence in the in the movie until like the final act where Sirius actually rocks up. Like, that's the most intense thing, and that doesn't even involve Sirius as a threat in any way. It's just kind of like, oh, on the map, this guy's all around. How weird. Yeah, he's meant to be dead. Let's go find him. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Am I being too harsh on this movie? No, I don't think so. I feel like I'm being really harsh on this. This is like children's entertainment. This is like stuff I felt like when I was a kid. Well, if I were to ask you, like, force you to focus on positives and things you liked, what what would you go with? casting mm-hmm. the cast is it's just really well cast the whole series is there anyone who wasn't well cast in this no i whole think series I, th- I think they've did maybe, pretty intricate casting maybe michael gambon is a as a dumbledore is like a big slap in the face when you transition to the two films because he is very different like he is nowhere he's not even trying to channel the same kind of characterization which Again, good, I guess, but also as a child, I think that was also a thing. As a child, that was a slap in the face because I was like, okay, I know the original guy died, but this guy's not even trying guess, to be the same <laughs> character. He's like, I guess Harry, we, I, I'm your good friend Dumbledore, and I'm mischievous, and I shout all the time. I'm a shouty man. And I'm like, okay, Jesus. I thought Dumbledore yeah, was like this quiet, well-spoken guy but uh, i guess not huh yeah i guess when you get into the topic of recasting then things get a bit shaky is he i can't remember is he the only is he the only one recast i imagine there's some others that i'm forgetting off the top of my head uh, there might be minor characters i don't know about this film specifically but but uh other things i liked i like the dementors they're fun when they do show up i like the train sequence with the ice all oh, that's fun i like yeah that was really cool 
I like Timothy Spall as a human rat boy. He was really great. Uh, yeah, was, yeah. He was... really he really had the mannerisms down. Yeah, the, 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 the vocal performance from him is really good as well. Like how he's sniveling like a rat, breathing like a rat. It's really well done. Um, I do like uh, some of the direction in the stuff. Like I, like you said, the camera moves are really well done. Lots of floating camera stuff, especially in the Great Hall sequence. I was about to say, yeah. I, I watched a video. Someone was talking about why they love the film, and they talked about... They pretty much fast-forwarded through that entire sequence and just showed everything the camera was doing, and it was really impressive. It was impressively well done. Uh, you know, I also really like the sequence in which Harry puts on the invisibility cloak, and he goes up and spies on the teachers talking about Sirius Black, and we get the exposition dump, because we needed it. The very, very quick exposition dump. Well, it's okay, because then he leaves, and he goes cry, and, uh, you know, Emma Watson pulls off the thing. That was a really well done sequence, just... Anytime he puts on that cloak, it's always well done. Uh, is there any movie where someone actually, like, other than Dumbledore in the second one, where somebody actually knows he's, he's there and then grab it off of him? Because in each each movie he's used it, someone kind of senses it and they reach out or look around, but they don't actually ever figure it out. Does anyone ever actually figure it out? Because Dumbledore does in one of these movies where he kind of gives a look to Harry. Is it in this movie or the second one? I can't remember. He gives a look to Harry in one of the movies when he's in the cloak is like giving him like a eh, eh, go 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 do this thing uh, the main thing i remember is that apparently it doesn't work on cats so the groundskeeper's cat oh notices. mrs norris yeah um oh i didn't know that there you go at least i think that's the case animals in general or just cats does McGonagall as a cat count? Well, that's a good question. Well, no, mm. because the one of the few times he uses stealth with the invisibility cloak in this film was with her. In but she wasn't scene. a cat. Yeah. She was just a human. Hmm. So maybe if she was a cat, she would have been seen him. She should have just randomly transformed and like, what are you doing? Minerva? I mean, if you could do that, wouldn't you? If you could transform into an animal, would, wouldn't you do that all the time? It would make this podcast very funny. There was a moment in which when Harry was bringing back the orb that fell down the stairs and he put it back. Oh, in, right. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Emma Thompson was like possessed for some reason, which still explain that to me, by the way. There was a cat sitting on her, on her chair. And I said to my wife, Rachel, I whispered, is that Emma Thompson as a cat? <laughs> because this is the world in which people people just chill out as cats. <laughs> and then Emma Thompson came from the side of the screen as a jump scare. They even did a jump scare noise, which was really well done. Mm. Um, and she just started speaking in a possessed voice, being like, The blood of an innocent is going to be spilt tonight. It's going to be you. Why was that there? Who did that? What was that for? Other than just letting us know, oh yeah, the movie's about a killer on the loose. Yeah, that's one of those things where it's like, oh, it's a setup in this film for a thing later. Where in, she... what, in the series or just in this movie? Later in the series. So in this movie, it doesn't really matter beyond just, you know, the foreshadowing of like, oh, you're going to suffer or you've got the grim, the dog symbol. Yeah, but I'm talking about specifically the scene where she is possessed with the voice and she's like, someone's innocent blood is going to be spilled tonight. Mm. Who was that? Was that Timothy Spall who did that? If so, why? If you're asking who possessed her, I, yeah. I don't necessarily know if there's an answer for a, a thing that possessed her. I think the main thing I remember at that about that character from the series is that in her regular you know self hmm. she's a little bit of a hack in terms of her teaching like she you know she's crazy oh right, right but right. 
But when, but she has this thing where when that happens, when she becomes possessed or whatever, that's when she's like, that's her actual talent. That's the thing that makes her valuable. Uh. So I think, you know how later in the series, Harry becomes the chosen one? Yeah, yeah, my favorite she, Yeah, she as that is the, the person who came up with that prophecy. Great, prophecies. Um, Again, are you a fan of fantasy as a genre? Yeah, it's in general. What are some examples that you're into of the fantasy genre other than Harry Potter? Um, I, I guess it mostly relates to games, not so much movies. Final Fantasy 1, Final 2, <laughs> 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. What well, has fantasy in the name? 7 Remake. <laughs> 7 Remake, I haven't played that, but I've played 7, so I hope that's good. <laughs> so you're more of a fan, but what about the fantasy genre do you like? What's enticing about it? I suppose... I suppose it's, a, it's similar to what you kind of say about sci-fi sometimes. It is a field or a genre where you can do a lot of different things, and it's mm. interesting when you see a lot of different things being done. Like, I think Harry Potter, you know, being such a widely popular series, it, it, it goes for a lot of very typical things like oh it's got witches and wizards they've got mm. wands they do magic and this is a world where uh people use these magical things and that's a very a very much a fantasy used in a modern setting with a bit of mm. you know secrecy to it you know there are the muggles they don't know about magic and you know that's this thing's thing there's a ministry of magic yeah then you have like what was that film that you recommended with uh tom cruise a legend was it yeah, yeah, legend. Yeah, like that one's a very like fairy tale. Yeah, very old fashioned, like you know, fantasy setting of like there's forests and all these creatures and things like the that. The bad guys, the devil. Yeah, and I remember I wasn't too into that, but the look of it was great. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you just have a lot of crazy things. Like again, you brought up Final Fantasy. Like mm. that's not really a series where it's like oh, part one is followed up in part two and then part <laughs> three. Like every. It's kind of like an anthology series. It's all different things, and they have all different settings. Like, here, you've got a few games where it's a medieval setting with an empire, and then you've got, you said, Seven. That's, like, a very modern one with all these modern corporations. Sci-fi aesthetic in some of them yeah. as well. Yeah, and, then, and again, you also sometimes mix sci-fi into it. You get, like, science fantasy. Star Wars. Yeah, so there's not really a thing where it's like, oh, yeah, every single fantasy thing has this thing, and that makes it great. It's just like, oh, let's see what interesting things you can do with fantasy. I just get frustrated with it, and even in this movie... I get frustrated with fantasy does a lot of that thing of um, it feels like it skips a lot of steps and just says, oh, it works because it's got to. Yeah, I, f- well, I can see that. Well, in science fiction, that happens obviously as well. But there's, and to me, with great science fiction, and this is considered to be great fantasy, in great science fiction, they put the steps in there yeah. and make sure. While in this, it's like, oh, in the first movie, Voldemort gets defeated by... Harry because he touches him because he has love. Mm. I'm like, I don't know what that means. Like, what does that mean? It's just like, you know, Ryan, love. And he's the chosen one. Why? Because he has to be. Prophecy says so. And in this movie, I got frustrated with it a lot of the time too, with the kind of fantasy trappings of that storytelling mechanic where it's like, oh, okay, well, Harry... You're isolated. 
no one likes you because you're the protagonistic fantasy hero who has to stand up for your own rights, yet I didn't understand why in this movie anyone felt that way towards him, really. Why did he feel so isolated? Why did he feel so alone and scared? Because that was what we wanted the theme to be. Mm-hmm. He fainted once, and that's that's why. And... Just, this one wasn't as egregious as some of the other Harry Potter ones to me with it, but there's just this, there is just these elements of like, oh, she gets possessed by, I don't know, I guess Voldemort, I guess she's prophesizing the future. Just I, to do I think a, it's just some inherent talent she, or something. But she seems like she's unaware of it, right? Yeah, I think she is unaware of it, from what I remember of the books. And there's that element too of, well, the books... Just just the books. Just the books. Because I'm watching this movie and there's whole sections of things where I'm like, what the fuck is this? Mm. And I have to ask my wife, Rachel, what's going on, who has read the books. And she goes, oh, the explanation is this. I'm like, oh, is this in the movie? No, 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 it's in the books. Yeah. And the movie treats it like it's in the movie itself, but it isn't. There's just many little things in these Harry Potter movies that do that. It's like, oh, why does Sirius know that the map is always telling the truth? Yeah, and... Uh... You know, it's one of these things, too, where it's like, oh, in each movie, they do a reset as well. Like, oh, they don't like Snape. They think Snape's this mysterious evil man. Yet in every single fucking movie thus far, he's done nothing but be a good guy and be on their side and save them and do the right thing. And yet every movie, they treat it like, that Professor Snape, he's secretly a bad guy. Yet he never, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, he's always a dick. And that's like, oh, dick, like evil. He's evil. Yeah, but in this movie, he didn't even get to do anything dickish. His most dickish thing was, Harry, what are you walking around the castle at night for? Well, he did have the thing where, and obviously it only worked on Hermione, but he set an assignment that was meant to stealthily reveal, like, oh, this guy who's got this secret, this is his secret. Yeah, I guess that was a dick move. But at the same time, he suspected that he was working with a serial with a killer. So yeah, he tried to smoke that out. And he was right, wasn't he? Was Lupin working with Sirius? Well, they had a, they had a reunion when we saw them in the same room together. Oh, I thought he was the one that led him into the school. I thought that's what Snape said, but maybe it was like he worked under that assumption. I think it was again. It's not clear, but I think it was meant. I think the fact that they hugged and stuff that was a reunion thing. But then the scene led you to believe that, like, oh, they they were conspiring the whole time. So oh, that scene. Can we talk about that? Yeah, I hated that. The whole scene is just like, I've I know, Scabbers the rat is is the guy. Just say it's the guy, and then we don't have to keep doing this little dance in which they think, oh, they're gonna yeah, kill they, Harry. They keep they keep saying him, and everyone is and they to point believe. at Harry, and they're like, and they're like, we're gonna tell Harry why we're gonna do this. And I'm like, oh my god, can you just say the rat is Peregrine? Like, because at that point, Harry has already investigated him. Mm. And told Lupin this. And Lupin knows... Lupin, yeah? Lupin. Yeah, yeah. Knows that. So why doesn't he just say, oh, Harry? Like, instantly, I'm thinking, oh, Harry, you know how you're investigating this? He's the rat. There you go. I just ended it in, like, less than ten seconds. But the scene needs to go for five minutes. That whole scene was scripted in such a way that you... There's, like, the multiple definitions. It's like, if you're in the know, you know that they're talking about the rat. But if you're not in the know, you're watching it the first time and you're kind of, you know, 
on the seat of your pants, like getting all this information, then you think like, oh, the obvious thing that the film's leading me to believe is that they're working together and they want to kill Harry and Mm. they just don't want to say key nouns like rat or Harry or in Ron's hands or anything like that. Or that's Peter Perigrew, the rat in Ron's hands. There you go. (laughs) Just, just ended it right there. But, uh, I get it, it's kidsy stuff, but at the same time, I felt as a kid these issues, I felt like, okay, this is getting ma- more mature. Mm-hmm. You're talking about how it's getting more mature, it's getting darker and all this, yet yeah, this has some of the goofiest shit in, in the first three movies. Like, the sense of humour mm. is a lot more, like, goofy to me in this one than the other two. Like, the most goofy shit to me in the in the first two movies was, like, John Cleese walking around as a ghost and he's being John Cleese. He's not in this one because he was like, I'm, I'm not doing that shit again. <laughs> um, and good on him. He's an old man. He didn't need He didn't need it. I would have loved it if they recast him with another Python. That would have been great. <laughs> like Michael Palin is now nearly headless Nick. Um, <sighs> that Yeah, that whole scene, it was really rapid. Like, the, they... <laughs> They do it, the trope of, like, character runs into the room to, like, enter the scene twice with, with Lupin and then Snape. And it's mm-hmm. it just like, oh, the suddenly new element to this really fast-paced scene, which, again, I, I think in the books it lasted a bit longer and had a bit more intrigue to it. But this, this the movie adaptation, it, it was just, like, zooming through it. By, <sighs> the, by the time you got to the point where they were outside at the tree and, like, Harry and Sirius were having that conversation about, like, you can move in with me. It's like, we have barely seen you in yeah. this film. I don't know anything about you other than you're Gary Oldman. Yeah, you you had, like, a you know funny little anecdote about you can live with the tail, but the, not the fleas. Yeah, I... I guess I... I guess I just grew out of the series with this movie, and coming back to it as an adult, I'm even more grown out of the series, and its legacy has been larger and larger and larger. And obviously, we mentioned at the end of last episode, now the real-world life of J.K. Rowling has, uh, in a way, affected these stories and books because there's these things about her character now Mm. that are very present. And you go back and you go, these were always kind of present in the stories as well, but we were forgiving of them because we were children at the time and we're forgiving forgiving of them as an adult because we thought JK was a good person with good intentions in her heart. And now she's an out and out transphobic, horrible person and her newer stories are like doubling down all these negative things. And... So when I come back to these movies and this world, there's even more of a little bit of a bitterness there because for several years I had had problems with J.K. Rowling as a person and I had a problem with the Harry Potter series with how um, it tried to do inclusivity or pretended it did by J.K. saying after the fact that she tried to put it in there. In this movie... One of the big things I remember people pushing against when it came out, and mainly with the book too, is Lupin is supposed to be like an AIDS or HIV allegory thing, and it's just like a really like haphazardly, messily done allegory that, again, since she doesn't actually commit to having any of the characters out and out be gay, or out and out have these things, 
you're sitting here going, okay, well, what are you trying to say? What are you trying to say about, like, a guy who at some point inadvertently got werewolfism or AIDS that turns you into an uncontrollable monster? Like, what is that saying about AIDS or HIV? What is that saying about the LGBTQ community who suffered from that a lot more than anyone else? What is this saying? JK, what are you saying? And... I got frustrated with that as the series went along, and uh, we've talked many times on the pod, I got frustrated, as I do with Star Trek Discovery and Star Trek in general as well, of, oh, we have representation, but we don't actually have it a lot. Like, oh, Dumbledore's gay, by the way, but I just didn't really put it in there because it was subtextual and it was up to you to figure it out. But I did it, so give me points. And Star Trek Discovery is like, we have gay characters, but we just don't give them any storylines or any characterization. But we have them there, so that means we've done the legwork. And I find that kind of inclusivity and representation to be annoying. Because I'm like, just fucking do it, or don't do it at all. Like, I'm, I'm very, like, cut and dry. I'm like, either fucking have Lupin be gay, and actually say something about... HIV and AIDS and the bigotry of it because there's a bigotry to his werewolfism right and if it's supposed to be an allegory for AIDS and at the end he's packing up his stuff because now he's disgraced because everyone knows he has werewolfism you know HIV or AIDS and he's leaving because people know about that and it's an embarrassment and people are going to ridicule him and people wouldn't want their children being taught by someone like that. Yeah, that was the main point. What are you saying, JK? What's this actually saying? You know, what are you trying to get at here? But, you know, it was, an, it was a different time, and JK's a certain type of person who... I'll have it hinted at, but I don't actually want to commit to it, because then that's going to open up a, a whole kettle of fish that I'm not actually prepared to open. Yeah. Uh, surprisingly, when I was watching the film... All of that kind of J.K. Rowling stuff mm. and, you know, the the fact that she says that all these things were being progressive. A lot of that wasn't in my head during yeah. it. But then I would remember moments with Dumbledore <laughs> and I would think to myself, like, oh, yeah, this this is being played out the same way I remember it as a kid. But now as an adult, this character, his name has a very big association to the point that you kind of think of him as, as like, trying to be a gay icon. Yeah. So he'd say something poetic or something like that. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a Dumbledore line. Oh, I guess it's also a line from an iconic gay icon, and it just seems but not real, I guess. Yeah. It doesn't I... feel like, oh, this is the thing I remember. I don't know. I'm being a Grinch and being a Killjoy, but as a kid's thing too, I always got frustrated that Dumbledore and Snape and McGonagall are these big characters, these big characters. But when you actually watch the movies, these first three, they're not in them all that often. And when they are, they're omniscient people who know exactly what's going on and know everything. And yet you go, how do they know that, though? Other than, oh, he's Dumbledore. He's he's God. Like, how does Dumbledore know what the fuck's been going on? Oh, because he's the pr- he's the professor. He's the head guy. He knows everything. He's wiser than you know. You can't trick him. 
He's 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 omniscient, and I find that boring. And McGonagall has that too, and Snape has that too sometimes. And I I always found that kind of boring as a kid. That's why I gravitated towards characters like Lupin, like Hagrid, like uh, you know, um, what was Kenneth Branagh's character in the second uh, one? Lockhart. Lockhart, where they were just like normal people, just in a fantastical world, and they would like had knowledge of just normal people, whether they be good or bad. Mm. Um, like Hagrid's just a guy, you know, like he's a giant and he's like a lovable guy, but he's just a dude. Like, he gives some wise advice here and there, but you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. he's just a down-to-earth dude, and I, find, and I find as a series of movies went along, that down-to-earth nature of our central three characters faded away too, where by the end of the movie's series, they are just the new iterations of Hag... of a... Of, of Dumbledore and McGonagall and Snape, in which they're these omnipresent people who've got to save everything of destiny. And I just remembered, oh, I remembered when I could relate to these characters. And I fell off of that because of the overly heavy fantasy genre, which, again, it's not for me. Mm-hmm. Fantasy's not for me. I'm not saying it's a bad genre. It's just one that I just don't gravitate towards to. It never has been... And I doubt it ever will be. There are some fantasy things I have enjoyed, but it's just, it's not my go-to genre. And it's not one that I get a particular kick out of. Some people don't like musicals. I don't like fantasy. Uh, yeah, you know what? I think you're touching on something there with um the whole thing about how you're not relating to them anymore. Like I mentioned earlier that as these films were coming out, they were kind of growing up alongside me. Mm. I think of that point as more of, like, an objective thing. Like, yeah, they were coming out as I was growing up, but I didn't necessarily, like, relate to it too much. Mm. Maybe there is, like, a sort of subconscious thing going on where, you know, at the beginning of the franchise, they're young, they're... obviously Not Ron, because he was into the whole wizarding world. He's pure blood. Um, But at least with Hermione and Harry and some of the other, like, muggle-born people, you know, they're discovering this magical world while also Mm. growing up and finally finding themselves... Maybe there is a point somewhere in the series, maybe it was around the time where the prophecy thing came out, where that relation maybe died down a little bit and became more about just like, oh, I'm reading a fantasy story about characters. I'm reading a story in which the chosen one must overcome the one who shall not be named. Mm. You know? Yeah. Yeah, instead of the boy from an abusive household who had to overcome bigotry. Yeah, I definitely remember with me reading through the books the first time, I think around the fifth book, it did kind of shift in a more like serious thing where I had to reread the book to mm. really take in all the details. Um, I'm trying to think. The time travel stuff, we're going to talk about the timey-wimey stuff. That mm-hmm. is like the big like drawer of the movie. It's like the final act is like a Avengers Endgame yeah. of the movie itself. Like, let's go back to those moments you just saw, but... Oh boy, they were the ones throwing the rocks at themselves. Do you know why you can't look at yourself um, in time travel stuff? Hamani just says it's bad. Why? I feel like that part was mostly just leading into the whole notion of, you know, like butterfly effect things. You know, Mm. I, I think maybe not so much specific rules of this world, but like general time travel things. I feel like because he looks at himself at the end, right? That's and he thought he was his own dad. Yeah, that that's what I mean. Like he doesn't know that that's himself. 
Right. So it's not so much that like, oh, the visual contact will create fuckery. It's it's the interpretation, the meaning behind that. Mm. Which the only the only plot hole I could see with that logic is if Hermione looking at herself mm. doesn't work because she would know that, like, oh, you use the time travel thing. Oh, you're going to the class. I'm so, the how's class. that? What what bad could that cause? You Maybe know? touching each other is a bad thing. I could understand that, but I like as well as ones like, what does visually seeing one another do any harm? Mm. I, I just saw that as that being, you know, like generic time travel stuff. Not a huge. I'm problem. a nitpicking bias, man. If you're gonna bring time travel into your story, you're gonna get a a big red marker from me because, uh, because of the implications of other uh, stories. It's, it's one of those things, right? Where once you introduce time travel, you you you, you know. This does its rules well enough. Yeah. But it's one of those things where it's like, well, if you're going to travel back to the beginning of the day or whatever it was, why not just find the rat and just put it in a cage? It's not going to go anywhere. You know, like, well, those things, because yeah. at the end he escapes and the next movie he brings Voldemort back, spoiler alert. And it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, well... Could you undo all the really bad stuff? Yeah, isn't, wouldn't the biggest priority be trap the rat? You know, mm. but it's like no, no. The big priority is free the hippogriff because if you do that, then you could do this thing, this thing. But it's like, but if you just trap the rat, none of those things would happen. Yeah, it's like Hermione could redo that care of magical creatures class and just like really get into stopping Malfoy. But I guess that's the thing, right? People make these comments all the time with time travel stuff. It's kind of annoying at this point. You could say, oh well, why doesn't Hermione just wind back the the thing all the way to the beginning and save Harry's parents and none of this would happen, you know? Like, yeah. this is one of those things where you, you can just go crazy. It's, it's like you said, for the purpose that they used it in, it was fine, but then the implications of, like, oh, well, why can't this be... Why why won't this be, you know, the whole franchise? I enjoyed the time traveling stuff. It was cute. It was nice. They I, did a yeah. good job with body doubles or composite effects and stuff. Uh the only thing that took me out of the entire movie was the final shot of the movie. Yeah, my... <laughs> my... It's one of those things where I go, yikes, um, boy, oh boy, that was a ch- that's a choice. Yeah, and I read what the choice was, and I definitely see what they were going for, but it's, it's still something you have to look at. What was the choice? So you know how when the Dementors are near Harry, it like, kind of sucks yeah. part of their face out of it, and it's like a stretch effect, mm-hmm. but that's like a bad thing? This is Harry being happy when it happens, but it's like a film effect, so... <laughs> it doesn't look good, does it? <laughs> that's the, well, that's the thing. It, it it had a purpose, but it doesn't look good. Do you think, when, um, do you think when pre-Oscar winning director Alfonso Cuaron looked at that, he was like, yep, yep, nailed it, got it. That's the, that's how we end the movie. <laughs> no, 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 and then, someone, and then someone else came in, no, 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 we should end the movie with Harry saying the phrase that opens up the Marauder's map out of nowhere, and then the end credits is the, is the map. Because that threw me for a fucking loop. Harry just quietly whispered into my ear the phrase and I was like what the, the ASMR and I was like what the fuck was that and Rachel goes oh, that's the phrase to open the map don't you remember I'm like no that was like two hours ago I don't remember that there's so many incarn you know there's so many spells and phrases I have to remember in this in this you know that I had forgotten like oh a bogget yeah sure why not let's, let's spend like 15 scenes on a bogget will the bogget affect the storyline later in any way no not really but it's getting Harry ready you see the boggets are training thing it got established and then used for a training scene that was also a setup to something later yeah there you go so it all it all got set up um 
are you interested in revisiting the franchise, the movies? You said you haven't watched them since 10 years ago. Are yeah, you interested in actually revisiting them, especially after watching what was one of the ones that you considered to be the better entries? Um, I'm not entirely against it, but rewatching this film, it wasn't so much a realization that I'd grown out of it, but it was just like a kind of confirmation like, yeah, I, I did grow out of this. What what do you think contributed to you growing out of it? Like you you finished the series and then you're like, I'm not visiting this again for another ten years. Me as a kid, I kind of understood. Like when mm-hmm. this movie came out, I just went, Oh, this is not for me anymore. I'm done. These reasons are here. But what what about it with what what about you happened over these years where you're just like, I'm just not. Um. So I, I definitely was into the books. I've definitely read each of them at least twice. Um, I did a lot of rereads when the franchise wasn't finished, but mm. with with the last book, I've at least read that one twice. So mm. um, it was one that I really enjoyed as a kid and I would constantly read. I, I was pretty big into reading. Um, yeah, I'd say until maybe I was like 15 or 16. Mm. Uh and it was just an interesting thing that a lot of people were into. It, it, it's a long series with a lot of lore, a lot of rules, a lot of, you know, connecting things to them. Minutia. You could, minutia. You could, you know, dissect it in a way. You could think about it. And for a lot of people, they are still Harry Potter fans and they're really yeah. into it. And when that Pottermore thing was announced, it was like, oh, now I can have like sort of like an expanded universe of this thing. Yeah. Um, but just at some point when the franchise was done and I was done revisiting it, I just moved on. And I, you know what, I think might have coincided with me kind of becoming a weeb. So I guess I just moved to other things. Do you think, uh, I guess you, we've already kind of touched upon this, but, mm-hmm. uh, did JK's, um, retconning and fiddling around with, with the series affect you in any way? Does it does or has it affected you? Like each week, there was like a moment in time where it was like, and J.K. announced that uh, Hagrid never actually found any love in his life, and he lived alone and was miserable, or some like bullshit like that. You would always come out with some yeah. new bullshit that would ru- ruin things, and it'd be because, like, because... oh, we never like Rachel was telling me just to brought in. Rachel mm-hmm. was telling me I was like, oh, so Harry named his kid not after Hagrid. Why? This is like, oh, because of these reasons. Like, oh, okay. So he had just a son? No, no, no. He had two. He had two sons and a daughter. I'm like, oh, okay. So what was the daughter called? It was like, oh, we see Ginny got to name them after two of her female, like, blah, blah, blah. Like, oh, Harry's mother and their friend Luna or whatever. I'm like, oh, so Ginny doesn't even get to name it after people that she cares about (laughs) in a major way. Like, when she doesn't get to name (laughs) name it after people that she's probably lost along the way. Like come on mm. and i love the rule of because she's a girl she gets to name the girl the girl names but harry since he's a boy he gets to name the boys the boys names like don't you love that that it, like she doesn't get a say in that <laughs> there's a rule to this ryan it's called gender politics you're married you have to consider like hermione was secretly black it's just you never knew about it like that kind of shit yeah <laughs> the, the parts in the book where it's like a meme like quoting the bits where it's like oh hermione's white face because she was so shocked and it's like <laughs> oh okay and the cover of the books yeah um oh yeah the question did, does that stuff bother me i think by the time she got to the frequent ones i was already out 
<laughs> you were already gone. You you kind of blindsided me early because you mentioned one that I'd completely, well, not completely, but mostly forgotten the the shitting themselves thing. <laughs> Wizards used to shit their because, pants because that one's like a major. Okay, that's a joke, right? <laughs> no, no, that's a real one. That's a real one. Pro ZD's video. That was just a joke, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's, just a, it's just a joke. Yeah, I. Look, I was already against the franchise at that point, but like I felt really sad when she started doing that because there are people I respect dearly. My sister is one of these people that loves this series, and I just think it must be a living, breathing nightmare to have worshipped this woman who had basically written your childhood literature, right? Mm. And then she comes around, and every week she's just like tearing a piece of it out and just wiping her ass with it and handing it back to you like oh it was people were still conflicted to this day of oh oh um dumbledore's gay it's like uh, well we could have had that in the actual book oh it was subtext and people go oh that's brilliant that's great representation and other people like me are like i would have actually liked representation actually be represented in the in the in the text yeah um I just I feel bad for these people now with JK kind of turning around into whatever the fuck she's into now and people are like really ashamed that they were so invested in her and invested in this world because now people are looking back and there's some certain sketchy things in in the books or in her writing style or in her belief system that's always kind of been frequently there. I feel bad for them because I've had franchises and things and properties I've been invested in in which the creator of those has kind of just turned around and been a real shithead and then it makes you look back and go, oh, that was always there. Mm -hmm. But I just ignored it because I was enjoying it in the moment. But with something as huge as this, it is just like, oh, how sad. You know what? My my answer to that is mostly no. Like, I mostly, I kind of... You know, the shitting thing, it's funny, things like that. Mm. Um, and I was mostly out of it, so I don't really care too much. But the, it, one one of the one of the people I read online who had, like, a headcanon thing that kind of hits kind of a little bit harder, given who J.K. Rowling is now, is uh, this was way before she was, you know, criticised or anything like that. Mm. Someone was talking about how, oh, wouldn't it be nice... If, like, there was a character who doesn't know, who's going to eventually come out, doesn't realise that they are not the gender mm. that they were assigned at birth, if they were to go to the Gryffindor common room, and if they're a male, for example, they tried to go up to the w girls' dormitory and it didn't turn into a slide? Because yeah. that's a thing in the franchise where if, if a guy tries to go into the girls' dormitory, it turns into a slide and it stops them from going there. Right. If that not activating is sort of like a... a an indicator to you like oh i now know who i am that would be really nice and it's like oh okay yeah this, this like person has a headcanon thing that you know headcanon's a thing that you can believe in and like take with you mm. to know that the person who creates the franchise would probably be wholly against that not only against it fucking disgusted by it that idea oh does it go that deep she has a whole thing in which she her transphobia comes from the idea of boys pretending to be women to get into secure places like toilets oh, and that, bedrooms that, and right. stuff. So the idea of that headcanon would absolutely disgust her to no end. Yeah, so when I think of that specific example that I happened to read on the internet that probably wasn't a big point, there it gets a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah, I think the franchise will endure even beyond her. I think it's grown beyond her. 
Oh, yeah, I think there's a big sentiment of... And I guess this kind of relates to cancel culture, but not entirely. Like, uh, you get out, but that thing you made can stay. Who was your favourite character growing up? Favourite character growing up? That's a good question. Whether they be the book or the movies. Mine was Hagrid. I'm a big Robbie Coltrane fan. Was before the movies and the books. Perfectly cast. Lovable guy. Yeah, I mean, he's a bit of a shithead as a person, but good actor. Um... And I've always enjoyed his performances. Whenever I watched the Harry Potter movies and he would come on, a part of me would be saying to myself, Sausage? <laughs> Sausage? From Blackadder? Um, I kind of blanked when you asked me the question, but the first character who did come to my mind was Hagrid. He's just this really lovable character who has this really iconic look to him that a lot of people think was nailed considering his description in the book. I remember often my dad would quote his line from the first movie whenever he goes, like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> You're a wizard, Harry. <laughs> Not that line, but yeah. Yeah, he was always fun, and I remember there was always, like, a cool intrigue of seeing, like, oh, who's the next defense against the Dark Arts teacher going to be? How are they going to be different? How are they going to... How are they going to leave? <laughs> how are they going to leave? How are they going to factor into the story? So that was always, like, a little fun thing. Yeah, yeah. I, Hagrid was always my go-to, but uh, Kenneth Branagh... He was pretty great. And uh, Jason Isaacs as Lucius. Mm -hmm. I missed him in this movie. It was like this vacant hole where I'm like, I feel like Jason Isaacs should be here, but they just keep mentioning Lucius, but he's nowhere to be seen. I think the trivia mentioned that he was meant to be at the execution. Where was he? Where was my boy Lucius, that fucking (laughs) asshole? I had forgotten until watching the second one again. Mm Mm-hmm. What his voice sounded like. I'm used to Jason Isaacs. I'm used to his I voice. Haven't, I haven't heard him forever. And yeah. I have forgotten that he has a real effeminate, posh voice where he's just very like, Hey, Mr. Potter, you've cost me my house, elf. And like a very feminine kind of posh voice. I usually think of Jason Isaacs being a little bit more, Oh, hello there. I'm Jason Isaacs. Yeah, I can't do his voice. But, you know, uh, but in this, I've kind of forgotten in the second movie, at least, he's a lot more of a prim, proper, madam-esque voice, mm. which was interesting with his whole entire aesthetic that he's got going on. Um, that's Prister Vazkaban, I guess. I don't know if there's much else you want to talk about with it. It's, I think we got it, yeah. It's a movie... Um, that made me want to stop engaging with a franchise. Um, <laughs> but when you say when I say that, it makes it sound like it's a real bad thing. It's not like the prequels where I saw Phantom Menace and I said, I don't think I need to see any more of these Star Wars films ever in my life. Mm. I didn't abide by that rule and I really should have. I should have trusted like five-year-old Ryan on that one, huh? Like, I should have trusted, like, small boy Ryan, like, six-year-old Ryan on that one, mm. because I've been burned from the Star Wars. I really should... Have you ever had that? Where there was, like, a younger version of you was, like, rejected a thing, but then the older version of you has come back to the thing, and you got burned, and you're like, I should have trusted my instinct when I was younger on this? Is there any kind of series or movies or books or anything like that for you, where you're just like, oh, damn, that's right... Young me was actually correct on this on this one, because that's me with Star Wars. Outside the original trilogy, I feel like there is an answer, but I cannot think of it. I, I don't know. The childhood for me feels like another world. <laughs> <laughs> mostly, mostly because of the whole language thing. But yeah. Well, I think it's time to recommend the movie for next episode. I am recommending the movie. Mm-hmm. I am also diving back into our childhood. Let's back go. into a series that um, 
even though it has a bad entry in it, it did not budge my love for the character. Mm-hmm. We're going to do Spider-Man. Yeah. The original Sam Raimi Spider-Man 1. I've always wondered when you'd pick that one, because, yeah. Spider-Man. We're going to do it with I... our boy Willem Dafoe as Green Goblin, uh, Jen Franco as Harry. Mm. What a great... Whoa. We're going to do that, because that's a series we also grew up with. Yeah. I and re... it grew with us. I've always wanted to revisit it, but I knew Ryan's going to pick one of them one day. Probably it... the first one. Yeah. Well, it's my favorite. I don't think it's the best, but it's my favorite. I think the best is Spider-Verse at this point. I mean, I I can see oh, of that. Of the whole franchise. Of all right. the Spider-Mans. Mm-hmm. That's what I mean. Like, although Spider-Man 3 was terrible, it still didn't budge my love for wanting to see more Spider-Man movies, even though a lot of them I still don't like. But this original OG Spider-Man really, really sunk in my love for this this character and these characters and this whole world and all of that. So we're we talking about Spider-Man Spider-Man. Um, well, Bartek is ready. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I've quoted that first Spider-Man movie so many times with random shit. There have been so many times where Bartek will say something. I'm like, are you out of your mind? <laughs> like, it's you who's... <laughs> who's out, Gobby? Out, out of, of your mind. mind. That's it, yeah. <laughs> uh, friendship is what I offered you. <laughs> but uh, we'll talk about that one next week, listening people. You can find us on the social medias of Facebook and Twitter, Spit and Polish Presents. You can email us at spitandpolished at gmail.com. Uh, we're always uh, keen on getting your thoughts, questions, queries, concerns, and recommendations for movies. We actually need some uh, further recommendations. We're running low mm. on our Pictures Power recommendations list. So please hit us up with the movies you want us to talk about. Next time the listening people will say, Ryan, I think you should talk about Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. And I'll be like, oh, fuck. What else can I say other than Robert Patrick? Robert, uh, Robert Patrick. I would fucking love it if Robert Patrick was <laughs> Robert in it. Robert Pattinson. Robert Pattinson was good in that movie, and then he wasn't good for another decade, and then He's... he came back to being good again. You know, funny, a uh, little bit trivia point. You know how the Quidditch match in uh, this, movie? Pr- this movie, Prisoner of Azkaban, was against Hufflepuff, the Yellow House? He wasn't there, huh? Yeah, he was... The, the character that was the other guy catching the snitch was actually that character who would be played by Robert Pattinson. Wow. The the book actually draws attention to the fact that, like, oh, yeah, he was actually a pretty cool guy. He kind of wanted the match to not count. And then... But he didn't matter for the rest of the book. And then the next one, that got a callback of, like, oh, yeah, he was actually pretty cool about that whole thing. And handsome and sexy. Yeah, and then he... And we all want to be him. And then he was a major character in that movie. It was cool. There you go. Uh, Bartek, a pleasure to talk to you. You know what this movie lacked, Christopher Azkaban? It didn't have the hat, the sorting hat. He wasn't around. Yeah. You get to hear his thoughts on the whole issue. I would have liked his his viewpoint on what was going on. He should have been in every book and movie. Yeah, yeah, he should have been. <laughs> he should have been in all of them. Well, I know that in the movies he doesn't sing. No. Yeah. Does he sing in the books? I can't. Yeah. Remember. Every apparently every year he has a different song. Why didn't they include that in the movies? Well, they're hacks. Well, they didn't cast. They didn't get Rick Mail in it. As it's as, okay. They got as a ghost. They got Shrunken Head. Or three even. <laughs>